Murdering with Guile by Rabbi Yaakov Medan He who strikes a person such that he dies shall surely be put to death. But if he did not lie and wait for him, only God made it happen, then I will appoint you a place to where he shall flee. And if a person comes brazenly upon his neighbor to kill him with guile, you shall take him from my altar to die. Halakha generally recognizes two types of murderers, one who murders knowingly and with premeditation, and one who kills unwittingly. But from the above verses a third type arises, one who kills with guile. In the simple understanding of the halakha, the special law of you shall take him from my altar to die is applied to any intentional murderer, but the sources apply it specifically and exclusively to the person who murders with guile. This will be the subject of our shiur. There are two types of murder with guile. The first, a person may deceive his neighbor into trusting him and letting down his guard, thus enabling him to carry out the murder without having to contend with any self-defense on the part of the victim. Concerning this type of deceit, Yirmiyahu declares, He speaks peaceably to his neighbor with his mouth, while in his heart he lies in wait for him. Shall I not punish them for these things, says God? Shall my soul not be avenged for such a nation? A perfect biblical example of this sin is presented in the story of the murder of Gdaliah ben Achikam by Ishmael ben Netanyah, a murder which led to the downfall of the last remnant of Judah. It was in the seventh month that Ishmael ben Netanyah ben Elishama, of royal lineage, and the chief officers of the king, and ten men with him, came to Gedaliah ben Achikam at Mitzpah. They ate bread together there at Mitzpah. Then Yishmael ben Netanyah and the ten men who were with him arose and struck Gedaliah ben Achikam ben Shaphan by the sword, killing the one whom the king of Babylon had appointed governor over the land. And Yishmael slew all the Jews who were with him, with Gedaliah at Mitzpah, as well as the Kasdim who were there, and the men of war. Then Yishmael ben Netanyah came out from Mitzpah toward them, walking and weeping as he went. When he met them, he said to them, Come to Gedaliah ben Achikam. But when they entered the city, Ishmael ben Netanyah slew them and cast them into the pit, he and the men who were with him. This interpretation of murder with guile does not sit well with the order of the verses in our parasha. One would think that this murder is even more abhorrent than regular premeditated murder. The order of the verses should progress either from the most severe to the least severe or vice versa. How are we to understand the order as it appears in the text? First, a premeditated murder, then homicide, and then murder with guile. Moreover, what is the nature of the special punishment reserved for one who murders with guile, that he is taken to die even from the holy altar? The first type of murder we discussed is concerned about the victim's potential of self-defense. A second type of murderer with guile is worried about the punishment that a Beit Din will mete out to him because of the blood that he spilled. There are two subcategories here. One does everything in his power to cover up any trace of his involvement with the murder. The other claims that he acted unwittingly or lawfully. The murderer who seeks to erase all traces of his deed will follow the example of the first murderer, Cain, who killed his brother Hevel. We read, God said to Cain, Where is Hevel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I then my brother's keeper? Perhaps God revealed himself to Cain while he was offering his sacrifice, as is the case in many other revelations in Tanakh. Cain killed his brother in order to force God, as it were, to accept his own sacrifice rather than that of Hevel. Perhaps, following the murder, Cain went off to achieve his aim and to offer his sacrifice to God. And as he offers it, he protests his innocence, claiming to have no knowledge of where his brother is. 
While performing the very service at the altar, Cain attempts to deceive the receiver of his sacrifice. God does not accept Cain's sacrifice. On the contrary, he banishes him from the altar. Further on in the interchange, God grants Cain a stay of execution. He cancels the death sentence that the murderer deserves, but does not forgive the attempt to erase the traces of the sin by hiding the spilled blood in the ground. He said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood calls to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground that opened its mouth to accept your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the land, it shall no longer give its strength to you. A fugitive and wanderer shall you be in the land. In other words, even when God cancels Cain's punishment for the willful murder, he does not forego the punishment for murder with guile. Cain is immediately banished from the ground which he used in order to hide his act. Another parasha that emphasizes this point is that of the Egla Arufa. Here, the Torah describes a situation where the murderer has succeeded in erasing all traces leading to him, as though the earth had swallowed him up, just as the earth swallowed up all traces of Hevel after Cain murders him. The heifer whose neck is broken in the ravine is the complete opposite of a sacrifice slaughtered upon the altar. Its purpose is to signify that God will accept no sacrifice as atonement for the murder, nor for the guilt of the community as a whole, for the fact that the murderer goes about freely. On the simplest level, the ravine where the heifer's neck is broken is the site of the murder, and therefore it shall neither be tilled nor sown. This ground is cursed because it opened its mouth and swallowed the footsteps of the murderer, just as the ground cursed Cain after it hid Hevel's murder. The elders of the Beit Din of the closest city must declare that they were not party to the hiding of this crime, that there has been no situation in which they came upon the murderer, but guilefully took no notice of his crime. The other type of guileful murderer, seeking to avoid punishment, but unable to cover up his actions, tries to camouflage his intent and to present his act as either a mistake or something that was justified and permissible. We read, If a man hates his neighbor and he lies in wait for him, and comes upon him to strike a mortal blow such that he dies, and he flees to one of these cities, then the elders of his city shall send and take him from there, and give him into the hand of the avenger of blood, that he may die. You shall not look upon him with mercy, you shall rid yourself of the innocent blood of Israel, that it may be well with you. This parasha is juxtaposed to the command concerning the cities of refuge, in order to protect those who shed blood by mistake. A willful murderer may not escape to a city of refuge, and therefore this parasha speaks about a person who murders with guile, seeking the protection of the elders of the Beitin in his city against the sword of the avenger of blood. The altar in this instance is interpreted contrary to the previous case, where it implied the place of divine worship, as the place of refuge from the avenger's anger. The avenger, so the murderer believes, will never dare enter God's altar with a sword. Therefore the Torah commands us, you shall take him from my altar to die. This would appear to explain the order of the murderers listed in our parasha. The first is the willful murderer. He is sentenced to death. The second is someone who did not lie in wait. The Torah sets aside a place for him to flee to. At this stage, the cities of refuge had not yet been established. The command to build them is to be fulfilled only upon reaching Eretz Yisrael. Therefore the expression, I shall make for you a place to where he shall flee, would seem to imply that the word makom, place, is used here in the same way that it is used in many other places in the Torah. For example, to the place of the altar which he had made there originally, and there Avram called out in God's name. And, on the third day Avraham raised his eyes and saw the place from afar. And finally, he came to the place and prepared to sleep there, for the sun was setting. He took some of the stones of the place 
and placed them for his head, and he lay down at that place. In other words, makom means an altar, or another site devoted to divine worship. It is to such a place that the murderer flees. According to our interpretation, the third type of murderer is a composite of the first two types. He murders intentionally, but pretends to have done so unknowingly. It is concerning this murderer that the Torah commands that he be removed from the place of refuge, from the altar, and put to death. It would seem that the biblical character who best epitomizes the concept of murdering with guile is Yoav ben Suriah, the commander of David's army. Yoav kills three people, either directly or indirectly, Avner ben Ner, Uriah Hachiti, and Amasa ben Yeter. Let us examine the murder of Avner. Yoav and all the soldiers that were with him came, and it was told to Yoav, saying, Avner ben Ner came to the king, and he sent him off, and he went in peace. So Yoav came to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Avner came to you. Why did you then send him, so that he has gone away? You know Avner ben Ner, that he came to seduce you, and to know you're going out and you're coming in, and to know all that you are doing. And Yoav went out from David and sent messengers after Avner, and they brought him back from the well of Sirah, but David did not know of it. So Avner returned to Hebron, and Yoav took him aside inside the gate to speak to him in private, and he struck him there in the belly, and he died, for the blood of Asael his brother. Yoav decides to kill Avner. It is possible that he does this because he suspects that Avner will seduce David and spy against him. Perhaps he does it to avenge the blood of Asael his brother. Perhaps he kills him for a different reason, which is not mentioned in the verses. The concern that Avner will take over his position as chief of the army as part of the agreement concerning the unification of the kingdom that is to be drawn up with David. How does Yoav kill Avner? First, he takes him aside at the gate in order to speak with him. Avner does not suspect Yoav of any scheming against him and fails to protect himself. Yoav exploits this and deals him a mortal blow. The Midrash and Rashi describe the scene in more visual terms. They explain, He asked him guilefully, a widowed woman who frees her brother-in-law of the obligation to marry her, if she is a dwarf, how does she perform the chalitza? He began telling him and showing him, she takes his shoe thus with her teeth, and he drew his sword and killed him. While involved in discussing a halachic question, Avner lowers his guard and does not protect himself. Yoav exploits this to kill him, in a way that is neither fair nor honorable. This is the way of guile. But this was not the only guileful aspect of Yoav's act. Yoav drew him aside inside the gate to speak with him in private. Rabbi Yochanan said, They adjudicated the case. Yoav said to Avner, Why did you kill Asael? Avner responded, Asael was a rodef. Yoav said, You could have saved him with one of his limbs. In other words, only wounded him. Avner responded, No, I could not. Yoav said, you aimed precisely at his fifth rib. You couldn't have managed one of his limbs. Yoav judges Avner in accordance with Torah law as a murderer, and he punishes him in accordance with the law of an avenger. Apparently, everything here is in order. But David, in his eulogy for Avner and in his will, treats Yoav as a murderer. David heard afterward, and he said, I and my kingdom are guiltless before God forever, for the blood of Avner ben Ner. It shall rest upon the head of Yoav and all of his father's household. May Yoav's house never lack a zav, a mitzorah, one who walks with crutches, one who falls by the sword, and one who lacks bread. You too know all that Yoav ben Suriah did to me, what he did to the two officers of the hosts of Israel, 
to Avner ben Ner and to Amasab and Yeter, that he killed them, and shed the blood of war and peace, and put the blood of war upon his belt that was around his loins, and in his shoes that were on his feet. Act according to your wisdom, and do not let him die a peaceful death of old age. Apparently, a person may judge his fellow in accordance with Torah law and still be considered a murderer, deserving of death. David knew that it was not the avenging of blood that motivated Yoav to kill Avner, but rather his concern that he would lose his own position as chief of the army. This is guile of the second variety. The murderer is wary not only of the victim's self-defense, but also of his own punishment at the hands of the Beit Din. Therefore, he produces explanations and excuses that are not true, so as to satisfy the judges and assure their protection. Yoav acts in a similar way when he kills Amasa. We read, Yoav said to Amasa, Are you well, my brother? And Yoav grasped Amasa's beard with his right hand to kiss him. And Amasa took no heed of the sword in Yoav's hand, and he smote him with it in his belly, spilling his bowels to the ground. He did not strike him again, but he died. There was guile involved in killing him, but in this case, too, there was seemingly a solid halachic justification for Yoav's act. We read in Sanhedrin, He said to him, For what reason did you kill Amasa? He answered, Amasa rebelled against the king. Despite this justification, Yoav is judged as a murderer for killing Amasa. This shows that the justification was no more than an excuse to get rid of Amasa, who was appointed as commander of the army instead of Yoav after Yoav killed Avshalom, and because David wanted to make peace with the commander of his army. The excuse, then, was nothing more than guile. Was there truly a justification for killing Uriah HaChiti, or was the supposed justification again just an excuse? The scope of the shiur does not allow for discussion at length on this subject. In any event, the prophet Natan rebukes him severely. But here we are discussing not David, whose motivations and state of mind we may perhaps at least understand. Rather, we are discussing his accomplice, Yoav, who fulfilled David's orders. Fulfilling the order of the king of Israel is clearly demanded by Halakha, but Yoav did not make any effort to know the limits of the law of obeying the king. We read in Sanhedrin, God will return his blood upon his head for striking two men more righteous and better than he. Better, because they understood the limitations of their duty to obey. They did not kill the priests of Nob despite Shaul's explicit order to do so, while he did not understand. More righteous, because they received their immoral orders directly, verbally, and they did not carry them out, while he received his orders only in a letter, but he still fulfilled them. The fact that Yoav was not blindly obedient toward David in other areas gives rise to serious questions as to his true intentions in the matter of Uriah. The way in which Yoav killed Uriah was also guileful. It exploited military camaraderie and self-sacrifice in order to stab a comrade-in-arms in the back. We read, He wrote in the letter saying, Bring Uriah to the front lines of the fiercest fighting and draw back from behind him so that he will be struck and he will die. And it was... When Yoav besieged the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew that the warriors were. When the men of the city came out to do battle with Yoav, some of David's servants fell, and Uriah Chiti died also. Then Yoav sent and told David all about the battle. He instructed the messenger, saying, When you finish telling the king all about the battle, then if the king's anger is aroused and he says, Why did you come close to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from atop the wall? Who struck Avimelech ben Yerubeshet? Did a woman not throw a millstone upon him from atop the wall, such that he died in Tevetz? Why did you approach the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah Chiti is also dead. Yoav's punishment is appropriate, as is fitting for one who murders with guile, 
concerning whom it is written, You shall take them from my altar to die. Then news came to Yoav, for Yoav had followed after Adoniah, but he had not followed Avshalom. And Yoav fled to God's tent, and he grasped the corners of the altar. It was told to King Shlomo that Yoav had fled to God's tent, and that, behold, he was by the altar. Shlomo sent Benayahu ben Yehoyada, saying, Go, attack him. Benayahu came to God's tent and said to him, So says the king, Come out. But he said, No, for I shall die here. Benayahu brought word back to the king, saying, Thus said Yoav, and thus I answered him. The king said to him, Do as he said, strike him, and bury him, thereby removing the innocent blood spilled by Yoav from upon me and from upon my father's house. May God return his blood upon his head, for killing two men more righteous and better than he, for he killed them by the sword, and my father David did not know. Avner ben Ner, officer of the host of Israel, and Amasa ben Yeter, officer of the host of Yehudah. May their blood return to the head of Yoav and the head of his descendants forever, and may there be peace for David and for his descendants, and for his household, and for his throne from God forever. Then Benayahu ben Yehoyada went up and attacked him and slew him, and he was buried in his house in the wilderness. The Gemara and Sanhedrin and the Rambam elaborate at length on the two death sentences that Yoav deserves. The first was for rebelling against the king because he supported Adoniyahu. For this sin the altar protected him, and Benayahu was unable to kill him. The second death sentence was for spilling the blood of Avner and Amasa. For this, Benayahu took him from the altar and killed him. Yoav's personality is too rich and complex to discuss fully in such a short space. Let us review just a tiny sample of the sources that balance the negative picture that emerges from the discussion above. We read in Sanhedrin, Rabbi Abba bar said, Were it not for David, Yoav would not have done battle. And were it not for Yoav, David would not have engaged in Torah. As it is written, David performed justice and righteousness for all his people, and Yoav ben Suriah was in charge of the army. What does it mean that David performed justice and righteousness for all his people? He was able to because Yoav was taking care of the army. And what is the meaning of Yoav was in charge of the army? So that David could perform justice and righteousness for all his people. And he was buried in his house in the wilderness. Was his house then in the wilderness? Rav Yehuda said in the name of Rav, It was like a wilderness. Just as the wilderness is open to all, so Yoab's home was open to all. Another opinion, like a wilderness, just as a wilderness is clean of theft and immorality, so Yoab's house was clean of theft and immorality. On the other hand, in this shiur we addressed only one aspect of Yoab, his sin of murdering with guile, and the severity of this sin and its punishment.